This morning, we're going to be looking at God's heart for marriage. It's from Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. We're going to look at verses 7 and 8, and, and then we're going to go to verse 15. And again, the title is God's Heart for Marriage. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every family who are watching. Lord, I pray for moms and dads and their children. I pray for those people whose mother has already gone. And for those that remain, Lord, we are so grateful for a mother's heart and a mother's influence. And so, Lord, again, I pray that you would draw near to the men and women of this church Lord, I pray that you would strengthen their marriage. I also pray that you would continue to strengthen their resolve and courage as they continue to support this ministry. I'm so grateful for each and every family that's watching. Lord, we commit this time to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to begin in verse 7, where it says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Verse 8, The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And now I want you to go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, where we read, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper comparable to him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man." Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. You know, I think it's interesting that the Bible begins and ends with a wedding. The first wedding takes place in a perfect paradise. The groom is Adam, the bride is Eve, 
And the second wedding takes place in the book of Revelation, in chapter 19, verses 6 through 10. It's called the marriage of the Lamb. And the celebration takes place in heaven. And the wedding announcement declares that Jesus Christ, the second Adam, is both groom and lamb. It calls for honoring the lamb, and it's called not the marriage of the bride, but the marriage of the lamb. And I think for pretty interesting reasons. The bride is represented as the New Testament church in John chapter 14, verse 3, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. And I would hope that you've just recently gone over with uh, Jonathan, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Remember, in the Bible, the wife is a, a, is a symbol, if you will, of the glorified church. And she's joined to Christ, her head, in both the royal administration and the dignity of Christ's forever kingdom. And so the symbol of marriage points to the consummation of the pure and the perfect bride, who are the saints, and the pure and perfect groom, who is Jesus Christ. Now, I want to just briefly draw to your attention that in both of those circumstances, both partners are betrothed, but they're single. There's a season of singleness that the church is experiencing and, and that Jesus experienced before this final reconciliation. But in both weddings, the weddings in Genesis and the wedding in the book of Revelation, we're given a glimpse of God's heart for marriage. In the Old Testament, God gives this testimony concerning David, quote, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. That's from Acts chapter 13, verse 22, who's in further taking it from 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse, verse 14, where the prophet Samuel is where it's written, the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. In both the book of Samuel and Acts, we see something. We discover that God has a heart, not a physical beating, pounding heart, but rather passion, commitment, resolve. And the passion and the commitment is towards obedience and submission to his revelation. And so, again, what is God's heart for marriage? There are several things that come to my mind. Permanence and patience and pain. In short, marriage is a commitment, a covenant, if you will, a partnership between one man and one woman. That's Genesis chapter 2, which we just read. Marriage is a gift from God, and it's designed by God. And marriage is intended by God to be a source of ever-increasing openness and mutual support and comfort. So God's goal for marriage has always included monogamy and transparency. You know, as a young kid, I was taught to define the problem in terms of the goal. And this is what this marriage series is about. 
the goal of marriage is unity. And the ingredients of unity are trust and respect and affection. In the weeks ahead, they're going to be talking more about that. But I want to lay the foundation for this study. It was Helen Rowland who said, marriage is like twirling a baton. It's like turning handsprings or eating with chopsticks. It looks easy until you try to do it. Socrates said, my advice, get married. If you find a good wife, you'll be happy. If not, you'll become a philosopher. Agatha Christie, the mystery writer, also looked on the bright side. She said, an archaeologist is the best husband any woman can have. The older she gets, the more interesting she becomes. By the way, Agatha married an archaeologist. I was shocked when I read Howard Hendricks. He said, quote, only six marriages in a hundred are truly fulfilling. I don't know if it's about his source, and I don't know whether or not those statistics are true, but it does beg a question about fulfillment. Because there's only one thing worse that I can think of than being unhappily married, and that's to be miserably alone. But the truth is, marriage was supposed to be fulfilling. And by the way, whether you're married or whether you're single, do you share God's heart on the subject and the revelation of marriage? When it comes to marriage, do you share God's heart about what it means as a member of the body of Christ or what it means to be in a covenant relationship with your husband or your wife? Do you share God's heart when it comes to having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? And this may seem like a lot of questions, but but make no mistake about it. The condition of your heart is going to determine the direction of your life. And its ultimate destination. It's your heart and your mind. Let's look at God's heart concerning marriage. We're going to take a brief look at how God created and designed both the man and the woman. And then we're going to talk a little bit about how God designed both the man and the woman collectively for himself and for each other. And so we begin at the making of Adam. And I want to, again, remind you to go back to Genesis chapter 2. In verse 7. And read it again. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. So what are some of the design details? The first man is created and formed by God. The substance that God uses is the soil. It's God's breath that gives a man a soul. 
And so it becomes clear that these design features are going to allow human beings to live in this world, but have friendship and fellowship in another world, in another dimension. You see, according to the Bible, you were created by God. You are not the random chance, happenstance of unguided and undirected processes. According to the Bible, human beings are made in the image of God. And so in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. And in verse 18, it says, And the Lord said, It's not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. What's interesting is that this text is just pregnant with information. We're going to have to limit ourselves just for the moment. I want to just bring out a couple of things. We could bring out so much, but according to this text, men are designed by God, and they're designed to work. Men are designed by God for companionship. The repeated testimony in the book of Genesis is that God's powerful actions in creation are good. In chapter 1, verse 4, he made the earth, he saw that it was good. He made the plants and animals and saw that it was good. In verse 12, it was good. Verse 18, it was good. Verse 21, 25, and 30, 31, God saw everything that he made in verse 31. And indeed, it was very good. But now the Lord makes it clear that something's not good. And that is that man should be alone. Human beings are designed by God for fellowship and companionship. They're designed for fellowship and companionship, but I'm going to suggest to you, not just any kind of fellowship and companionship. The word translated helper in verse 18 means one who meets needs. And so according to the Bible... Men are needy creatures. And by the way, the fundamental building blocks are found in verse 7. Human beings are made from clay or dirt. The Hebrew word is afar. It can translate clay or earth or mud or ashes or ground or mortar, powder, even rubbish. So dust seems to be the constituent elements found readily on the planet Earth. By the way, the five major minerals in the human body are calcium and phosphorus, potassium and sodium and magnesium, and all of the remaining elements in a human body are called trace elements. So clay is composed of fine-grained minerals, and it has elastic properties in the presence of water. We're God's workmanship. And at least two Old Testament writers use the metaphor of a potter and a clay to describe the limitation of the humanity of who we are 
It's described that way in Isaiah chapter 6 verse, or excuse me, Isaiah 64, 8, and in Jeremiah chapter 18 verses 1 through 4, where Jeremiah goes down to the potter's house and, and talks about the potter and the clay. We're made of trillions of cells with a complex nucleus that contains DNA. This is information, chemically coded information and instructions. There is powerful evidence that human beings are designed by a designer. We're 60% more or less, 65% water, depending on your gym membership. Some of us are more water than others, but the earth's crust is largely composed of oxygen and silicon. So minerals that bond these two elements together are called silicates. We are quite literally dirt. And so no wonder the Bible says, dust you are, and to dust you'll return. But the text doesn't stop there in verse 7. The Lord God breathes into the man, and he becomes a living being. The term breath and spirit are used interchangeably in the book of Genesis to describe God's spirit. God exhales into the body that's formed on the earth. We are both earthly in our construction and divine in our identity. According to the Bible, your life, your existence can't be defined or explained exclusively through material processes. Dr. A.E. Wildersmith, who had earned PhDs in science and philosophy and math, said, quote, The necessary information to build man does not reside in the few elements that compose him, unquote. So we should be careful. When we say to one another, I'm only human. Because the phrase probably means way more than you could possibly imagine. According to the Bible, there is something unique and amazing being made in the image of God. And so we see the design elements, the making of Adam, the making of Eve. Look at verse 19 where it says, Now out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle to the birds of the air and to every beast of the field but for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him and the Lord God caused a sleep to fall on Adam and and he slept and he took one of his ribs and he closed it up in the flesh of its place then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman and he brought her to the man there's a quick note that I want you to pay attention to. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every creature. 
This technically in, in, in the Hebrews, what's called the pluperfect tense. That means that these activities take place before the making of man in verse 19. In other words, God has created the heavens and the earth and he's created the animal life. So in verses 19 through 22, we see that Adam has intelligence and language and speech. Adam names the animals. Now, some of you might be wondering, well, why? Why does God give him that specific task? Now, I'm going to suggest to you that Adam is given the task to name the animals because once you can name something, once you can define something, you can talk about it. And so I am going to suggest to you that that's exactly what's happening. And this should give you ladies great hope that men are capable of talking about things. So why does God cause a deep sleep to fall on Adam in verse 21? Some scholars believe it's God's compassion. Others believe, believe that God wasn't interested in Adam's input concerning the design of the woman. And make no mistake about it, God knew exactly what he was doing when he created the ladies. And so, the first marriage is an arranged marriage. And it's interesting to me, in the last marriage that's spoken of in the Bible, it too is an arranged marriage. In other words, God, by his Holy Spirit, is calling out a people to himself, a bride who will be the constant companion of Jesus throughout all of eternity. And so whether you're married or whether you're single, God is calling you, perhaps, in this season of singleness, knowing that in eternity, you're going to be the constant companion of Jesus forever. And so, again, the Lord's creative work doesn't end with Adam. Man is incomplete. The world is incomplete. And so the Lord fashions a woman. And later, fashion will form the woman. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just teasing. That's not really true. The Lord could have formed the woman apart from the man using the same substance and the same breath. But the Lord chooses to use live tissue. And the revelation given in the Bible is that the woman is made from the man's flesh and bone. And it would appear that the same information system that is given to Adam is in many ways given to Eve. So what are we to make of this revelation? I think that the text is interesting. The rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he, I want to draw your attention to this in the Bible, he made into a woman. Now what's interesting again is the word translates a Hebrew word which means to fashion or to fabricate or to build much like you would design a careful building 
project. It's the same Hebrew word that's used to describe the fabrication of the temple. Warren Wiersbe says, quote, The fact that Eve was made from Adam shows the unity of the human race and the dignity of the woman, unquote. Unlike many cultures which suggest that women are inferior or less than men, nothing could be further from the truth. We're given hints of God's design for marriage, even in his design for men and for women. Now, there are obvious differences in the sexes, but even in our day, those differences which for generations, were obvious, are now debated. According to the Bible, according to the book of Revelation, it says that God created the heavens and the earth, but there are people who say, that's not true. That God created man and woman, but people will argue and say, that's not true. But according to the Bible, human beings were made They were made distinct. And again, in both the differences and the similarities according to the Bible, we find in the differences and the similarity God's goal. Each person reflects the image of God. That's called the Imago Dei. But the image goes into sharper focus when men and women are viewed together not a part. And so the clearest picture of what it means to be human according to the Bible isn't just simply found in a singular description of the man or of a singular description of the woman, but of both. So what does the Bible tell us? In this section Some people suggest, well, this is just a mythical construct to help explain what primitive human beings could not bring themselves to understand. No, the Bible gives us an accurate description, a revelation about our origin, about our creation, and the reason for our presence in this world. In a very real sense, The woman proceeds from the man. There's a mystical element. Human beings are made in the image and the likeness of God. And again, many Bible teachers have noted the similarities between Adam's bride and Christ's bride. Unlike Adam, Jesus doesn't go to sleep when the bride is taken from his side. Many Bible teachers have noted that the woman was not taken from, man, from Adam's head to dominate him or from his feet to trample, to be trampled on or trodden underfoot. Eve is taken from the side, the place under his arm, near to his heart, the implication to be protected, the implication to be loved. You know, I'm reminded of a story where a man lost patience with his wife. Karen had this strange habit of locking her keys in her car. Her husband, Steve, would have to be called from work. 
and he would bring the spare key to open the door. This is before the days of keyless entry. In frustration, her husband made this unkind remark, quote, I just don't know how someone so beautiful could be so stupid. And Karen lowered her head and she looked to the ground and she, she spoke softly and she said, I think God made me beautiful so that you would like me. And I think that God made me stupid so that I would like you. Harsh. We laugh. But that's the tragic truth. That some girls value beauty more than brains because some men see better than they can think. But that's not God's plan and that's not God's purpose. God didn't make you smarter or less smart to bring out the differences, but to celebrate the differences. And so now we begin with the meaning of marriage. This is what we're going to focus on for the rest of our study. In verses 23 through 25, look what it says in verse 23. It says, and Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha, woman, because she was taken out of the man. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. The man names the woman in verse 23. He calls her Isha in both name and nature. The man and the woman belong with each other and they belong to each other. This passage is a goldmine of information. The first great discovery that we make about marriage is that it's God's idea. Now again, remember we're talking about God's heart for marriage and that includes the biblical definition of marriage. Marriage is something that God invented. Marriage is God's construct. It's not just a social construct. It's not something that's defined by simply the culture or the culture's institutions. According to the Bible, these elements must be present in order for it to be a biblical marriage. It has to include a man or a woman and a woman and a contract or a covenant. So marriage was and is God's institution. The meaning of marriage is found in its origin. The meaning of marriage is found in both the origin and its purpose. And so I want you to think about this. Marriage, invented by God, designed by God, and marriage is a gift from God. So the Lord God creates Adam in part for Eve. And then he creates Eve for Adam. And in marriage, these three things broadly take place. Number one, the man leaves his mother and father in a public act. 
and then promises himself to his wife. Number two, the man and the woman are joined together and then they assume responsibility for one another as well as love one another. And number three, the two become one flesh in the intimacy and commitment of the sexual union an activity reserved exclusively for the marriage. And so a biblical marriage, a strong marriage, a healthy marriage is always going to include those three elements, leaving and cleaving, responsibility and love, intimacy and commitment. And so again, monogamy, God's heart for marriage at the beginning was monogamy. Some people might argue, well, later on in the Bible, uh, a man had more than one wife. Well, again, that may be true, but it was never God's original plan. People will cite Abraham and they'll cite Jacob. But again, this was never God's plan. The Lord Jesus affirms this reality in Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 6. In his answer to the religious leaders' questions about marriage and divorce. You'll remember the religious leaders said to Jesus, Is it lawful to divorce, to divorce a man, man uh, uh, divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them, from the beginning, made the male and female. He's quoting from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And then he said, Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother, hold fast to the wife, the two shall become one flesh. Jesus quotes what we've just read together in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And then Jesus says, So they are no longer two, but one. And so the Lord says, what therefore God has joined together, let not a man separate. So the Lord condemns easy divorce for trivial reasons. The Mishnah records, the Mishnah is a group of, of Jewish writings. And the Mishnah records that in the school of Shammai, a man could not divorce or could not divorce his wife unless some unchastity was found in her. And in the school of Hillel, it says that he could divorce her even if she spoiled some dish for him, put too much salt on his falafel or whatever. Rabbi Akaba says he may divorce her even if he finds someone fairer than her. So if you have a 40-year-old wife, you can trade her in on two 20-year-olds. Wayne Grudem says, rather than enter the debate, Jesus affirms God's original plan for marriage and that it remains his ideal for all marriages. The prophet Malachi saw marriage as a covenant and that God would hold people responsible in that covenant. So we should always ask. When we're dealing with deep difficulties. With real problems. We need to be able to ask. Is it possible for this marriage. To be restored. Can we preserve this marriage. 
So God's heart for marriage is monogamy and it's also unity. Therefore the man leaves his mother and father and cleaves to the woman and the two shall become one. God's goal for marriage has always been unity. And if you're not experiencing unity in your relationship, then you should ask yourself several reasons why. That one flesh is a radical expression of unity. The kind of unity that I think requires three essential elements, which will be talked about in the weeks ahead. Unity requires trust and respect and affection. And if you've ever had a failed relationship, it's probably because... The trust was damaged. The respect eroded. Affection diminished. You might think that these elements are arbitrary, but I don't think so. All marriage requires unity. By the way, if you're struggling in your marriage, it's probably because... You're not experiencing unity. Leaving, cleaving, becoming one. But it isn't just a unity towards each other. It also has to be a unity that includes God. That includes the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The vast majority of problems in in marriage can be seen either because of the erosion or the absence of trust and respect and affection. So what are some of the trust words we use? Confidence, reliance, dependence, faith. Trust is the word that we use for intimate knowledge. Trust is the word that we use for expressing deep affection. And affection incorporates feelings and emotions and passions and sentiment. The next thing is transparency in verse 25. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. The Garden of Eden is their honeymoon suite. The Garden of Eden is a perfect environment. Theirs is a perfect partnership. Theirs is a sustained relationship, absent shame. Think about that. The text gives us a picture of transparency when it uses that term naked and not ashamed. So what does transparency mean? It incorporates the idea of clarity, openness, or honesty. By the way, when you are open, when you are honest, it always involves risk. Transparency requires personal and collective honesty. By the way, it is impossible to be honest with someone if you can't be honest with yourself. Chuck Swindoll said, (laughs) Honesty has a beautiful and refreshing simplicity about it. No ulterior motives. No hidden meanings. An absence of hypocrisy and duplicity. Political games and verbal superficiality. 
as honesty and real integrity characterize our lives, there will be no need to manipulate others, unquote. And so manipulation becomes the tares, the poisoned weeds in the garden of your marriage. It was Thomas Jefferson who said, honesty is the first chapter in the book of wisdom. And so it requires honesty between husband and wife, but also between church and God. So what is God's heart for marriage? Well, it incorporates all of the revelation that's given in the Bible on the subject. What's God's will for marriage? We've seen that it's unity. A unity that incorporates trust and respect and affection. The Bible's picture of marriage, permanence, purity, intimacy, unity. But where does faith and hope and and love fit in to God's heart for marriage? Well, let me just say this. Faith makes all things possible. Hope makes all things bright. And love makes all things easy. It could very well be that this time of confinement has been a revelation of difficulties in your relationship with your husband or with your wife or with your children. But now, more than ever, we need to have God's heart on the most important subjects, like the subject of our relationship with God through Jesus, on the subject of marriage, on the subject of children. And so again, in the weeks ahead, there's going to be some great teaching and instruction to help you go forward. And again, I want to thank you. I want to thank you, thank you, thank you profusely for all of the prayers and all of the support. I want you to know that Mary and I are doing great. Again, thank you for the support and encouragement that you're giving to Jonathan and Carolyn and the staff And I look so forward to seeing you soon. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we pray for all of the marriages in our churches. Lord, we pray for each and every family. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen already strong marriages. And Lord, I pray that you'll bring healing to those relationships that even now are suffering. Lord, I pray that we would find ways to trust and respect and cultivate godly affection one for the other. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.